Davina Huang, the Wandering Wasp. Thank you for talking to me. Um, I've been wanting to do this a long time, ever since I came across your story on Instagram and I think it was on YouTube a number of years ago already. And I was actually quite intrigued by your story because um, here's this young girl from Singapore, uh, establishment, boring, routine Singapore, that is doing this amazing trip around the world. And you're doing it by yourself on a Vespa, a classic Vespa, to boot a very old one. And I was trying to get in touch with you for a very long time and I want to do this interview in person but uh, we can't anymore because uh, of lockdowns so here we are on Zoom I think the best way for us to talk about and introduce your story is for you to talk about how you started in riding and uh, how and why you started riding motorcycles of all things <laughs> uh, well I think that will have to go all the way back when I was a poly student um, so I was around I think 17 or 18 years old when I first travelled to Vietnam with my schoolmate. So that was the first time I traveled without my family. Um, but you know, tra- without traveling without the security and comfort of you know, having your own family members is that you get to really go out there and explore by yourself with your friends. So I remember we were at this um, hill town called Sapa and my friends and I, we got to know a few uh, Mongols, the, the tribal Mongols. Um, they were selling their souvenirs on the street. Uh, we got to befriend them and um, talk to them, interact with them. And I realized that our life path and expectations is very, they are, we are very different. Um, so that kind of ignited a curiosity uh, in me uh, because having grown up all my life uh, in Singapore, uh, what I only know is like the only way that we are taught to live, um, which is to okay, study get a career, marry, settle down, have kids, that's all. Um, so that kind of ignite a, a curiosity um, to find out more about the rest of the world because it is not all the time like that for others. Um, so that trip actually made me want to explore more. Um, I actually thought of um, traveling around the world for the few years, uh, going hobo, but I never really... Um, done that uh, I, I didn't really do that because I was um, quite uh, afraid but what came out of the Vietnam trip uh, was actually to um, get my motorcycle license uh, because in Vietnam uh, I got to see lots of uh, scooter um, going around uh, the streets so uh, I thought, you know, it would be really fun to be able to have your own bike and just uh, explore a country by yourself. Um, so when I came back to Singapore, I decided to uh, get my motorcycle license. So the first scooter, I mean, the first bike that I got was the Vespa scooter because I was uh, just graduate. I don't really have a lot of money. So I just got a cheap scooter for, I think, around 2000 Singapore dollars at that time. Yeah, and that's how, uh, yeah, I... I I started writing and uh, it was um, through writing that I got to know a community of uh, bikers from different backgrounds, from different walks of life and all of them, they have like very interesting uh, characters, very interesting uh, aspirations or even career. Uh, some of them, they like to um, travel long distance on motorcycle. Um, yeah, so that was how I started writing. Uh, when I was twenty years old. Yeah. So um, the the thing is, the thing is, a lot of people have travelled, right? And they've been abroad, and they want to go out and see the world. 
But um, something, I mean, um, almost all people, they do it in a holiday. They do it three weeks, uh, three days, four days, five days, um, and then they work, and then they go on leave, and then they go on holiday, right? So, so that's the main, the, the normal route. But, but knowing what I know, of, because I read about some of your postings from a few years ago, there was something that triggered your trip uh, to go solo, right? I think it was a friend of yours that you were riding with, and he he passed away or something in a car accident, or that made you question, you know, um, the practicalities of life, and you know, it was quite existential. Um, was was that the the one thing that that triggered your your decision to go abroad, solo? Yeah, that is the actually one of the main uh, trigger for me to really just drop everything and just go. Um, because, okay, this friend of mine, he's a very encouraging fi- figure in my motorcycle and Davier. So I used to ride dirt bike too. So I thought I was too short to handle a dirt bike. But he encouraged me um, to do so. Uh, and you know, when I was like struggling and people like telling me I got the wrong bike. I had a KTM 200 at that time. So people were saying, oh, the bike is too tall for you. It's too powerful for you to handle. And then uh, he said that, hey, uh, don't listen to them. Uh, you... you just need more practice, just get more practice and get used to handling the, the bike, uh, which I did. So I didn't really um, sell it immediately. I got used uh, to it. I even take part in enduro and motocross competitions uh, on the KTM 200. And for he himself, this friend Lawrence, uh, he's also a very intrepid uh, character. So he wanted to ride from Singapore to China border uh, with another good friend, of mine. So previously he has done uh, trips to North Thailand and all. So this time around he want to aim for uh China border. So it will be pa- he'll be pass he will be passing through Laos. Um and just a few weeks before he was about to set off, unfortunately he passed away in an accident while while driving a van. It wasn't a motorcycle accident. Uh it was while driving a van. And um, his passing was really an epiphany that Life is really very short and uncertain. So the life path that I've, I've been brought up to believe, like the, the single track path to success about you know, getting good grades, good job, having a family and settle down, I, I thought, is this really what I want or what society wants of me? So I think I really asked myself at that time, is this really what I want? Um... But actually, I, I, I look back at that dream of trying to go travel the world uh, when I was 17, 18 years old, that trip to Vietnam. Um, I want to ignite that, that dream again. I really want to do it before... You know, because I, I don't know what will happen next, you see. If I don't do it now, when will I ever do it? Wait until I retire. When I retire, by the time I'm about 50, 60, I don't think I have the youth and vigor to do it anymore. Um, so I really want to take the chance now, you know, now the thing is what the asset that I have now, okay, I don't really have a lot of money, but the asset I have is my youth, uh, and I don't really have liability. Mm. So I don't have like children to look after and my parents, they are still, uh, very independent. So I thought, you know, I should do this as soon as possible instead of waiting for everything to be perfect, everything fall into line. Uh, and then go. So I decided to just uh, make do with whatever I have, eh, trying to save up the money, even working three jobs, three jobs in a day, to, um, yeah, to to save up the funds um, before I set off. 
And actually, this trip was supposed to be with friends. Uh. You know, uh, it started, I think this idea came about when my friend and I were talking about Lawrence um, and what he stands for uh, and his uh, spirit of adventure. And then my, fr- my friend suggested, oh, why not write beyond uh, Indochina, write beyond Southeast Asia? Because so far, I think for most bikers in Singapore and Malaysia, we like to write to Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, right? Anything beyond that is, um, it requires more commitment um, and it's more unknown. <laughs> um, so my friend suggested, hey, why not we write all the way to Europe? Just not just do, do Southeast Asia, go beyond that. Then I was like, okay. I thought I was really intrigued by the idea and I really wanted to do it. So I set myself a, a timeline, a target okay, to set off. Um, but you know, when... I mean, don't you don't talk about this two-year trip. Uh. When you go on your usual vacation, you have friends, right, who wants to come with you. Oh, you're like, oh, let's go to Japan. And then when the day of departure draw closer, your friends started backing out because they have other priorities and commitments. So um, I kind of like expected that I will end up going alone uh, because my friends, they, their, their circumstances have changed. So I was prepared to go alone because uh, having to go alone is not uh, an excuse not to go. If I were to wait for someone to come with me, I maybe I will not be able to set off. Yeah, so if I waited, 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 maybe by now I still haven't left for my trip. Correct, correct. And a lot of people, myself included, um, you know, when you're compelled by your parents and your society and peer pressure to, you know, to go to school, then go to university, then once university ends, then the expectation to start working is there. So there's a few windows on it, right? Between school and university, and then between university and starting work. And so many, especially Asian children, they never, they never take that gap year to go. Unlike a lot of like European or, or North American students, right? They have that gap year, which we don't have. Culturally, we don't have that that gap year and you see so many kids are like 17, mm-hmm. 18 years old or 23, 24 they're travelling the world so I found it very unusual for someone like you to to, to make that decision right uh, and to basically go it alone but not only did you go it alone you did it on a very old Vespa right uh, not not a new Vespa you know an old Vespa right so henceforth uh, the name Wandering Wasp Wasp of course is Vespa in Italian right um, t- tell me about that part the part about going on my Vespa, uh, okay. Yeah. So that late friend of mine, Lawrence, he said, it is the rider, not the bike. So, well, for his own adventure, he also used, um, you know, small bikes like Kap Chai, right all the way to Thailand. Then for Laos, he was uh, actually wanting to ride a DRZ400, which is a super motorbike. Um, so that is his uh, belief. He thinks that it is... Um, you know, the rider being to able to adapt to whatever you have to just go on a long ride rather than finding the right bike, the perfect bike uh, to go. Um, for me also, it's a, very, a, a practical option because of uh, budget. You know, in Singapore, vehicles are not cheap. Yeah, and then uh, the paperwork involved to bring vehicle into different country, it is carnet de passage. So at that time, if I were to ride 
a big motorcycle, which is above 400cc, I had to put a 30,000 deposit for this document. But for my scooter, even though it's an old scooter, I still had to put 10,000 Singapore dollars for the deposit. Holy shit, man. That's huge, man. Yeah. Huge, so man. before I even set off for my trip, um, already like, well, one third of my travel budget is already dumped into this deposit. Um, and the thing is, yeah, at that time, I mean, the rules are always changing. La, you know, because when I first decided to do this trip, right, the Carnet de Passage, it was based on the vehicle value. So I thought, okay, just go on a cheap bike. Then I don't have to pay so much, put so much deposit. But I didn't expect it to, they have a, they changed their um, deposit loading after uh, after some time. So um, yeah, I ended up having to put a 10k deposit. So when I was crossing Myanmar, uh, no, crossing from uh, Myanmar to India, so the immigration custom, uh, they saw my document and they saw the, the value of the vehicle. Um, yeah, it was 10,000 and they find it very amusing <laughs> because I find it amusing. Was a, it, mine is an old scooter. <laughs> and because I was crossing Myanmar with um, other bikers from different parts of the world, so because Myanmar you have to uh, engage a guide to cross the country, you are not allowed to do it independently. So I have Malaysians, I have Australians, uh, Germans, Russians, Indonesians with me on the trip. And some of them, they are riding all these big bikes. Among all the bikes that were there, mine was the most expensive. <laughs> really? Literally? In terms of the carnage? Yeah. Yes, the Kane. So actually, a few months uh, after I crossed that border, there was another Singaporean who crossed that border. Um, the immigration, uh, the custom officer actually told this this uh, traveler, Singaporean traveler, say, hey, you know, a few months ago, there was a Singaporean lady, she was crossing um, this border, and you know how much her, her scooter is worth? It was 10,000 Singapore dollars. Wow. It was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous Yeah They could um, remember it um, The value yeah. Okay so, so Since we're on the topic Of the whole Issue of funding The journey So yeah Because there's a lot of people Right Even though they want to go And they can go And they've got the courage to go Then they don't have the money Right So how did you manage to Accumulate the, the travel funds in, in At that age Because I think At that time You're only about Early 20s right I was 27 uh, So I started saving When I was like 24 I was working a few jobs, so I moonlighted. So on top of my full-time job, everything, in everything that you made, you just put towards you your savings for the for the travel, right? For the travel, right? Yeah. So uh, I have like two bank accounts. One of them is my travel funds, and then uh, we try. I so every month I will just put aside money into the to this account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 just quick, quick quickly, right? What was the route that you took? Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, then Myanmar. Singapore, then Malaysia, Myanmar. Thailand, Myanmar, Northeast India, Nepal, India, uh, Pakistan, uh, Iran, Armenia, Georgia, Turkey, Bulgaria, Macedonia, uh, Serbia. So I was in Serbia for quite some time. So I took trade. I, I traveled by land to Hungary and Romania. So it was without my scooter. Um, then I also went to Bosnia-Herzegovina, Croatia, Monte Montenegro, Kosovo, Albania, Greece. Yeah, I went back to Albania. I took a ferry from Albania to Italy. 
In Italy, I went up north to Switzerland, Liechtenstein, um, and then to Germany, Austria, and Czech Republic. Yeah, so my scooter is still in Czech Republic. Wow, wow. So you, you actually spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe. Uh, was that intentional? And how much planning did you do on your route before you left? I think for the planning-wise, I only plan until Pakistan. After that, I just wing it. Okay, okay. So which one is yeah, better? Because... Which way is better? The plan or don't plan? It really uh, is really up to you. For me, because I had the luxury of time. So, that so whole actually, trip... I feel so that. The, the, whole, the whole trip until Czechoslovakia, how long did it take? 27 months. Wow, so that's a long time. I, I, Over two I years. didn't even plan to go 27 months. I thought I'll be okay, I think this this route that I'm taking, maybe I'll take eight to nine months. I really didn't plan to go on uh twenty seven months, but it turned out to be twenty seven months and I realized I can survive with very little on the road. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, okay. Okay, let's talk about the trip in a little while. But then in terms of the whole travelling solo as a female thing, right? That I, I guess that could have been a big thing before you left, just the fear of going alone. A lot of people say, oh, you know, you got to watch out, you got to, you know, care for this, care for that. Um, what are your reflections on that, traveling solo as a female, as a girl? So I get uh, ver- two very different responses from people around me. Um, so there'll be one group that say, no, don't do it, you're a woman, you're going alone, it's too dangerous. And uh, there's also another group that, um, you know, they are very encouraging. Um, so they're like, oh yeah, do it. You're not, you're not regret it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be very life-changing. Um, so usually the ones who say don't do it, they are the ones who have never done it before. And the ones who encourage me to, to go are the ones who have done it before. Um, so actually in 2008, there was a Singaporean couple who traveled around the world uh, on a motorcycle as well. So they are kind of like my shifu. Uh. So... I always approach them for advice and whenever they host uh, passing travellers in Singapore, I will go to their house and also uh, meet up with people who are actually doing it, who are actually on their journey. So yeah, the people that I met who are doing it, who have done it before, um, they always encourage me to go and not to cave into fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of things. So from time to time, I, I check in on your Instagram, right? And one of the things you talked about was obviously that when people are on the road, um, people are very friendly. They're exactly opposite to what um, a lot of people are af- afraid of, right? People are afraid of being attacked or burgled or robbed or, you know, or, or worse crimes on the road. And I think other than a couple of instances with a couple of guys in Iran or something, uh, most of the time, most of the people you met were, were actually very good. So just in terms of lessons learned on the road, right, Javina, um, how do you deal with your daily routine as a girl? Right? Obviously, you've got your things to do. And then also, um, what, what kind of tips and advice can you give to other maybe aspiring uh, girl riders that might want to do this trip? Maybe solo or maybe a couple of them, a couple of girls, you know? Um, I think it's great. I think I think solo female travel is fantastic, but maybe they want to go with a couple of friends as well. So, what kind of advice would you give to them? Uh, okay, I think this advice I gi- I've given it so many times, but I think I will have to share it again. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's not even just for traveling, but anything that you want to pursue. So, uh, before setting out on a journey, do not seek advice from those who never left home. 
that is the so most so basic. I mean, even if you want to like start a business, you want to learn how to cycle, you want to approach those who have cycled before, those who really have the experience. So they are able to give advice that come from a place of experience and, and not from a place of fear. Yeah, because sometimes I just feel that fear, it can be very, it can be an illusion at times. It's very crippling. Yeah. It's very limiting. Yeah. Uh, I think what this journey has uh, had taught me is I'm really much capable than what I thought I was. I didn't know I can do so many of these things, like repairing my scooter. I left Singapore a mechanical idiot. I didn't know how to fix my scooter. But after two years, I was a roadside mechanic. Like My throttle cable broke. I was able to just stop by the roadside and you know get it fixed tire punctured get it fixed uh yeah so i i didn't know i can uh, uh, i could do that you know so uh i didn't know that um i can adapt i'm very adaptable um to changes uh i can connect with people very easily so the people that i've met the families that i've, that I've stayed with they all say you know you are very easygoing. You are like not fussy about things. So, uh, yeah. So these are the things that I realized about me because um, I tried going out there and put myself out there to try different things. And that's when I know that I could do all these things because if you never try, you'll never know. What about practical tips like um, sanitation for, for oneself as a girl? Um, hygiene, things like that. Or what about things like eating uh preparing your own food maybe do you cook your own food or do you always you know search for eating somewhere do you have any dietary limitations maybe you don't eat meat maybe for example um, and then also in just in, in terms of safety right how do you like mitigate the the, the chances of the risk of being um, burgled right those, those kind of like real practical tips what what can what advice can you give okay so i think what saved me helped me most of the time is situation awareness being aware of your surrounding uh, and you also have to observe what the local people do or not do. Um, you know, some of the things right, we are not uh, used to. It can be a cultural uh, false parts uh, over there, but for us, it's, it's normal, right? So um, things like if, let's say, in their culture, um, men and women, they don't go and hug each other as a greeting. They are conservative. Then I wouldn't let a man hug me. But, you know, in Italy, it's very different. It is, uh, I mean, hugging is very normal. It's a common greeting. Um, so these are things that I'll observe. If this is not something that you do in your culture to the women in your, in your society, then you don't do it to me. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, sometimes I feel that um, there's a bit of double standard in how the local women are treated and how a foreign woman is treated. Uh, because when you're a foreign woman, you come to a country as a guest, they do not hold you to a certain uh, expectation as they would to a woman. So like for me, traveling as a woman in some of the very conservative country, I was able to step into two worlds. Um, so like motorcycling is a very male-dominated space. So I was able to enter some of the space in very conservative country. And for me, I get to also meet the women, the family members, the mother, the daughters. Uh, and while, while I was uh, interacting with this German guy, he was uh, in Pakistan the same period I was. And I realized that our, diff uh, our travel experience can be very different 
A lot of families open their homes to me because it is less imposing to host a woman into, uh, in their homes because of the female family members. But for him, uh, okay, there were some that opened their homes uh, to him. But you know, when he come home, he never sees the wife at all. It's like every time he come back to the host place, like they had the wife away. Um, for me, I was able to go into both space. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, that is one advantage of traveling as a woman because it's less imposing to people. And I, I mean, as a woman, I'm less intimidating as well. So if I break down the road, uh, if my scooter break down the road, right, I think uh, people are more likely to come and help me than like a burly man. <laughs> yeah, definitely less imposing and less intimidating than um, like a big six foot German guy with like a BMW 1300cc GS, whatever, right? Then, you know, even if when you come into town, you're like, oh, this guy is so howlian, right? With his big bike and noisy, rather than like a little Chinese girl on a little Vespa, some old Vespa, right? Um, very much more welcoming. I think that's one of the things that BK Lim, another guy I spoke to, for, he's from Penang, grandfather when he rode around the world to London, Downing to Downing Street. He went with, this, with a whole bunch of other old guys, all in their 60s and 70s, on Kap Chai's. And it's so easy for them because they're so unintimidating. So people are more welcoming of them. But then in terms of things like, say, maybe like food, right? Um, how do you do your food? Did you cook on the road or did you did you go and search out for food? Did you Was that a culinary experience for you as well? Things like that. Uh, yeah, it actually like depends on where I travel. So in Asia, it is usually very cheap to eat out. So I would... I, I mean, I, I don't mind eating out. It's more convenient and food is really cheap. But as I was approaching Europe, uh, things start to get really expensive. It's very expensive to eat out. So I tend to uh, cook and pack my own food. Yeah. So I'm a vegetarian. So, um, but sometimes I'm a bit flexible. Uh, if really there's no choice, I have to eat meat, I would just eat meat. But if given a choice, I would choose not to eat meat. So... Uh, at least I learned how to s- express my dietary preference in the local language. Like in, in Persian, I'll say, Bendune Gush, say without meat, without meat. Okay, so you learn the lingo on the road, like, that's quite cool. Then in terms of like health and sanitation, right? Um, I think guys almost take it for granted that we can go anywhere, right? Anyhow, just zoop and then off you go, right? Um, maybe it's a little bit different. I've, I've got female, female friends of mine who, who won't go and climb um, or, or, or even do hikes in Nepal because... Like once you get into the higher reaches, you know, like sanitation is an issue, right? Um, how how did you deal with that? Like you can't shower sometimes, right? Well, how would you deal with that? Yeah, um, well, shower really sometimes a bit difficult. Okay, so as uh, uh, when it comes to the monthly period, um, I would use menstrual cup. I think menstrual cup is a lifesaver. Um, because pet can be very inconvenient. It get fills up very quickly. You need to change it frequently. Um, and one thing I also don't like about pet is that it's not very environmentally friendly because you're disposing a lot of yeah. plastic waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and then tampons, mm, you can't keep it there for too long because there's also the risk of the toxic shock syndrome. Mm. Uh, and in some conservative countries, you it's very difficult to get tampons because you know they think that oh, you insert something in, you lose your virginity. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's the conception they have. Like, they still tie virtues uh, to a piece of tissue or hymen, you know. You break it, no, yeah. you are a loose woman. Uh, Incredible. 
So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, oh man, I, I dealt with like all this really kind of, uh, you know, very ridiculous kind of uh, thinking. But that's what they've grown up with, you see, believing all this. Yeah. So, yeah. we are all products yeah. of our upbringing. Yeah. Um, and also the environment, right? Yeah, the environment. Mm. So, I, I, am I, I use menstrual cups. And menstrual okay. cup is like... Okay. It, it, you just put it inside there and then um, you don't really feel it and it can uh, hold up the, the the hold up the flood for quite some time yeah okay so I guess I guess you've got to be quite adaptable on the road um, whether you're a guy or whether you're a girl you just have to adapt to the circumstances and I think in between right sometimes if you take a vet, sorry you're saying no I have also uh, one more device that I carry with me that is a urinary funnel oh so you're riding you can just let go lah is it yeah, so I can pee while standing up. Oh, I don't so, have to so, so, bear so. my butt in the mountains <laughs> to pee. <laughs> and I used it uh, when I was riding in the Himalaya mountains because it is so barren. There are no trees, no bushes to actually, uh, you know, cover up, yeah. your, to hide. Yeah. And, and cover, do it. Right? No, so, so I have to do it by the side of the road. Does that work for a guy as well? Because you, you don't have to go and stop and then, you know, you know put the bike on the guy, stand. Guy, Guys, you all can pee while standing, what? Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For women, get... we have to bear our butts to pee. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Did that a few times in Nepal as well, so it's a bit embarrassing. Especially when there's no trees around, right? So you're like, shit, yeah. just looking, right? Yeah, so, so I use the urinary funnel uh, a few times. Because in the mountains, you have to drink lots of water to so that you don't get acute mountain sickness. But the downside is you have to pee a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so... So which parts, because just now you reeled off all the countries that you travel, right? Which, which ones are the ones that, that stood out the most for you in terms of experience, in terms of um, the, the beauty of the surroundings, in terms of the beauty of the people? Which one stood out for you? Stood out? Uh, well, it's very difficult to, to pinpoint uh, any one particular country because a lot of countries, they have all their different beauties. Like for example, India, I've... It, it is so diverse. I feel like I'm visiting multiple countries when I was traveling in India. And then for Pakistan, it's really the hospitality of the people. Incredible. Uh, four and and a half you months. don't expect that in Pakistan, right? Because Pakistan's got yeah. like a, kind of like a, an image which is seen as negative around the world. Uh, yes, but you know, those people who have been there, they're always telling me the different things. That's why I was like, hmm, okay. I want to experience it for myself. And true enough, they were right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Pakistan is, uh, the northern area is very beautiful. The Karakoram Highway with the Karakoram Mountain Ranges and all. Um, and yeah, people are really friendly. Um, four and a half months there, I hardly stay in a hotel. Four and a half months in Pakistan? Hosted. Yeah. Wow, that's a long time. That's a long time. People go around the world in four and a half months sometimes, you know. Why, why did you spend so long there? And where did because you go? the country has a lot to offer. I spent, I think, like three weeks plus in the north because it was so beautiful. And the hostel there was really cheap. I went during the off-peak season. So it was like $2, US $2.50 a night for my dorm bed. So you just like chilled out and during the day. Was, you you just did whatever you yeah. wanted to do. Yeah, yeah I, I go, I make small trips, I explore, I go to the cafe, I meet up with the locals, just have a chit chat with them, have chai with them and talk to them and and just know about, you know, know more about them. 
cook with them. <laughs> yeah, Pakistan was really amazing. Um, yeah, that's why I, I, I only planned to stay like one month because my visa was for... In, in the beginning, it was only for two months, but I extend. I managed to extend it um, to, to, to actually five months. But of the five months, of course, I, I cut short my trip. I, I only used four and a half. You got to go to the local Singapore embassy, la, is it, to do that? No, you have to go to the Ministry of Interior Affairs to extend the visa. Because, because I'm staying in their country, so it is them who decide whether I can stay. So it's not Singapore embassy. I see, I see, I see. Okay, okay. Um, and then when you went from, from there into Iran and of course Central Iran Asia... Iran was very good too. Iran, I yeah. spent three months plus over there. Wow, three months. Mm. And then Armenia and Georgia. Uh, I think Georgia is a very un- underrated destination. I spent around six weeks there. Um, they have mountains, they have sea, and it's quite a small country. And it is a crossroad between Asia and the, and the West. A bit like Turkey, so the, right? Turkey, right? Yeah, a bit like Turkey, but again, it's not like Turkey because they also have like a bit of a Russian influence too. Yeah, so Georgia and the mountains, the Caucasus mountain was, was beautiful and it's very affordable. Um, so yeah, Georgia is one country that uh, I really, if, if possible, I, I don't mind um, living there or, or working there. Um, wow, that, that that's a big... That, that's a big, um, you know, endorsement of the country. Did you go through Turk- Turkmenistan at all? No, I didn't go through Turkmenistan. Yeah. Then after that, it was Turkey. Turkey, I'm really amazed how the Turkey people treat animals. I've never seen a place where animals are so well treated. The street animals, they are weird. I don't call it stray. It's like community animals. And the animals, they are so comfortable oh. with humans. And, what kind and, of and the people are just animal? so kind. Like cats and dogs. Right? Sometimes you see in other countries or even like you know, in Singapore, the, the, the dogs, they are like, oh, they have, um, you know, scabies and all. But over there, they'll, all the animals are very well looked after. And you know the water spring in the park? So they had a water spring for humans to drink, right? They even built a lower one that's for animals to drink. Yeah, and outside shops is very common for shopkeepers to leave food and water outside their shop so that animals can can eat. And uh, at the bus stop, right, um, and even at cafes, uh, and this animal doesn't belong to them. The animals will just sit very close to the human, and the, the people just don't they don't flinch. Not like you know in, in Singapore, you're like shoo 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 go away. Like no, animals and humans they are so comfortable with each other, even at cafes at the bus stop. Um, so yeah, I'm very amazed by how um, like the Turkey people they have this culture of really treating animals so well. Mm. Uh, what and I, liked I was about in the Balkans also. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No. What I liked about your trip was you spent a lot of time in like Eastern Europe, Central Europe, which is typically not many people, especially Asian people. Right? Asian people think they go to Europe, it's like Paris, London, you know, um, Munich, Berlin. Scandinavia, then they think they've done Europe, but they haven't done Europe because they haven't seen Eastern Europe. And you spent a lot of time there, the Balkans, Georgia. Um, I don't know whether you went to Uzbe- Uzbekistan as well, things things like that. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't go to Central Asia. Okay. But okay. I would love to visit okay. Central Asia. Yeah, yeah. So 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 from, from Turkey, where did you head to? Um, after Turkey, I went to Bulgaria. Uh, and because when I was living... Wine. Good wine in yeah. Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Yeah, actually, a lot of places that are good wine. Like, even Georgia, they have very good wine too. <laughs> uh, 
so uh, because as I was leaving Turkey, it was November. Um, so it was getting cold. Um, not very nice to be riding around in winter. Uh, so I chose to hibernate in Serbia. I found a hostel to volunteer for free accommodation. So I kind of, uh, uh, kind of like you know, volunteer as a receptionist for around twenty eight hours a week. Then I get free accommodation there. So I was in Serbia for like four months. Mm. Then I also um, did voluntary work over there. So after my shift, um, I would go down to this abandoned barrack next to the train station um, to help out at this makeshift uh, soup kitchen uh, for refugees. Yeah, so and also I took the time to rebuild my engine too when I was in Serbia. Since I've had the time, I just give my scooter a good overhaul and learn more about my scooter, yeah. Wow, fantastic, fantastic. Serbia is the land of Novak Djokovic, right? Um, then, then from there, which other countries like stood out in your like imagination? You know, when you when you re- recollect that trip, um, what other countries you know gave you good memories? Um, I think Montenegro is also a very unique country. Uh, it's very small, and you can have access to the sea and the mountains very easily. Um, yeah, Montenegro, although I didn't really spend a lot of time there, but, but yeah, the bays, they were very, very beautiful. Yeah, so these are some of the countries that... Yeah, I, th- I think the experience of when you travel in places like that, right, um, when you're on a bike and it's, you know, you're, you're exposed to the whole surroundings, the experience of traveling through a country on a bike is very, very different from when you're in a car, because in a car, you're like, you know, you're, you're covered by a shell, right, behind a window, even though your windows are down... It's a very different one. Um, I, I, I also want to ask you, right, um, accommodation, did you spend most of your time in hostels or did you do a lot of camping as well? How did you sort that out? Um, a mix. Okay, so it really depends on the country. So for me, when, I, when it comes to camping, I will either camp in a place where everybody sees me or nobody sees me at all. Um, so India, I didn't camp a lot. I was staying in a hostel and homestay most of the time. Cheaper, uh, because- right, those? It's cheap and um, uh, the thing is you can't really find like a secluded place to to camp because people are everywhere unless you're going off in the mountains. Um, but I start I started camping a lot more from Iran onwards. Yeah, so Pakistan it was people hosting me most of the time. Uh, in Iran it was a mixture of people hosting me, camping and also hostel. Um. Yeah, Armenia and Georgia it was a uh, hostel and homestays. Mm. Turkey, I also camped quite a lot. Yeah. So how does the process of hosting um start? Because you don't plan to stay with the house, right? Presumably, there's some kind of interaction, and then they say, "Hey, you know, um, who are you? Where are you from? And then, oh, where are you gonna stay? And then, and then the whole process of, hey, why don't you stay in my house? Um, how does that process work? Okay, so some of them are pre-planned. So, um, like for example, in Pakistan, um, it was the Motorcyclist Association of Pakistan that helped me with the visa application. So, because in order to get a, a Pakistan visa, you need a letter of invitation. So, I received a letter of invitation from them. Um, so, I remember the first day when I met the president of the club. Uh, he was saying, the, you, you are our honorable guest in our country. So, uh, if you travel to any cities and we have members there, uh, just just reach out to us. We will we will be happy to host you. Whoa, cool, 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 cool. So cool. that is why in Pakistan, a lot of my uh, hosts they are also mo- motorcyclists themselves. Yeah, um, 
And then in Iran, it's a mixture. Some of them, I got to know them through other travels. So actually, you know, when I was traveling on the road, right, I also met up with other overland travelers and we were traveling in the same direction. So sometimes uh, they are slightly ahead of me and they make some local contacts. Then they will pass me the local contacts. Uh, wow, so that's it's just very organic lah. Yeah, or sometimes, you know, I was just like, I was intending to wild camp in Iran and I was paying for my, my food in the grocery uh, grocery shop. And then there was this family, they start to strike out a conversation with me. Uh, and then they're like, oh, where are you going tonight? Then I say, um, chador, I say camping, um, yeah, tent. And he's like, no, 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 tonight, my house, my house. Wow, wow. And then the conversations and the stories you can have with the locals is amazing, right? Yeah, so he was like, oh, my house, when, then, and after that, I just went my, do my sightseeing, I explored the island, then at night, I went to his place, then he received me, and then he showed me where's the shower, and I was like, wow, shower, because I haven't showered for a few days, <laughs> then, it's uh, a godsend, right, yeah, you can shower for yeah, the first like, time, yeah, 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 because I was while camping for the past uh, few nights, and like, wow, shower, then, um, he, he said, and then he showed me the kitchen and the food, and he said, my house, your house, same, same, you, me, wow, Mikasa Sukasa, Ah, uh, yeah, but but he's uh, he can't really speak English very well, so he just say my house, your house, same same you me. Mm. So the whole um, idea of hosting was not something which is prevalent in Asia, right? It's only once you went into like kind of like Iran onwards. Is that is that the case? Because Asia is very cheap to stay in hostels and chalets, right? I I find that this is very prominent in the Muslim countries. Ah, so 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 so. so, 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 so. Like so, Iran, even though you're not Muslim, is that okay? Oh, uh, I mean, for, for, I think it's in their culture. In, because whenever where I go, right, uh, in these um, uh, Muslim-majority countries like Pakistan, Iran, um, Turkey, um, I always hear the word Musafir com- coming out. Musafir means uh, traveler in uh, Arabic, if I'm not wrong. Um, so they say that in their teaching, all the guests, they are actually angels sent from God. And uh, as a Muslim, you are obliged to really take care of them very well. Yeah, it is a mixture of uh, it's it's a cultural thing like, among uh um I think in, in Muslim and um I've also talked to some in Pakistan. Uh, they say that oh Pakistan because it used to be part of a Silk Road right, and there's a lot of traders that pass by some of these uh, major towns, and it's very common for them to open their homes to all these traders. So it is like kind of ingrained in them. And then also, you know, the Pashtun people, the Pashtun ethnicity, they have a unwritten code of conduct called the Pashtunwali. So one of them uh, is to honor the guests. So they have to give everything to their guests, which I found them feel a bit bad uh, because I remember there was one guy yeah. who wanted to slaughter two yeah. goats to welcome me. Then I, yeah, I, I yeah, think my no, host was like telling no, him, no, 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 she's a vegetarian. <laughs> don't slaughter the two goats. So they, they feel, I don't know, there's this... Um, uh, uh, an honor uh, honor code to give to their guests. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and then beyond Even that, if they are your enemies. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So, um, uh, if you go and watch the movie The Lone Survivor, it was about this American soldier right. who That's right. uh, was That's in, right. in, I think, Afghanistan. He seek refuge right. with a local guy and the local guy protected him. Yes. Yeah, that was in their, in their culture. Yeah. That's right. That's right. The Lone Survivor. I saw, saw, I saw that recently, actually. Um, so beyond past that, then beyond past, uh, you know, your your Muslim majority, like past Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, then into like, into the Balkans, um, then 
you did a whole bunch of countries there, right? And then you ended up in Czechoslovakia. Uh, what are some of the stories there? Um, so I think it would be my time volunteering at the refugee soup kitchen in Serbia. Um, that I think that experience was very. I'll say it was. I realized I'm really privileged. And to hear like how really young kids coming up to me saying they miss their parents. Um, and I, I thought of them and um, I thought of my own nephew and niece. I, I wouldn't want anybody to go through that. Were they like victims of like conflict, um, of immigration or? Yeah, some most of them are from Afghanistan, and some of them, you know, they are actually brought into a country by smugglers, and the family paid a lot of money to vote to smugglers to get them into a country because they don't see a future for their children in that country, and they just want to send the put in all their hopes on that one child to get them to somewhere where they can have uh, a life. Yeah. Yeah, because the country is war torn, right? Or maybe going through some conflict or some dictator or something. Um, how long were you there, and what kind of like um, experiences did you did you have? Mm, like um, dealing with people who have gone through PTSD. Because okay, I was helping in the distribution of of food. Um, and then there was this guy who came over and snatched two bread. Actually, each person supposed to get one bread. So I took back the extra bread from him. And he had a meltdown. So I didn't, I, I didn't understand actually what happened. Like, why is this guy having a meltdown? And then I later learned that this guy, his brother was killed with, in front of him by the Taliban. And he was uh, captured by the Taliban and imprisoned for I don't know how long. And I don't know what they did to them. Um, so he, yeah, so that's how he ended up in Serbia. He's trying to get away from his country. PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. Like it's like a, it's like a war, something that war soldiers suffer from. Yeah. And then I remember, I know because I always ride my scooter to the campsite, right? Uh, so, uh, I have my scooter. It has a lot of, uh, country flag. And all this flag, right, it meant quite a lot to me. Mm, because these are flags that were the the sticker flags are given to me by the friends I met in all these different countries, so it was pasted on my scooter. And then there was one day, a young boy came over. He started scratching the flag of Iran and Pakistan, and I was very furious. I scream at him. I tell him to to go away. I say, "Why are you doing this?" I was very angry. Um, but later I re- reflect back, right? Um. And also, yeah, when I was uh, helping over there, one of the things we had to do is also queue management control. So sometimes there were fights that break out between them. And it, it, I, I just kind of reflect on like what these people have gone through. Like, you may think that, yeah, they are very <clears throat> unruly. You know, they don't know how to behave. Um, they are, you know, they are like that. You know, you may think, yeah, you may pass judgments and say, yeah, these people, they don't know any manners. They are not civilized and all. But you come to think about that, where the place where they come from. Probably some of those young boys, they've never known a day of peace in their life. And survival is about fighting to survive. 
So probably that's what they know. So I, I really wonder, you know, being civilized, right? Is it something that only those the privileged can can have? Right? If you're growing in this environment where you know you, you, you don't know when is your next meal, you are worried about whether your life can be in danger, you're always in this fight mode. So who am I to judge them, you know, for what they did and what they have um, for the things that they've experienced because I'm I'm never in their shoe to judge them. I never know what they've been through. So yeah, and the the, the thing about privilege, that me having a a Singapore passport and, and being able to cross borders so easily, but for them it can be a game of life and death. Because I think you know no and I remember there was a graffiti on the back, right? It says that nobody leaves home unless home is a shark of a mouth. I think these people, they really don't want to leave their home, but it was the dire situation in their homes that forced them to leave. And for me, I can just wave my passport and just cross border easily. But uh, for them, sometimes they have... Uh, so they, they call it the border crossing process, they call it the game. So sometimes they will say, um, yeah, tonight I'm going for the game. Game, game. So I have to give them their food first. So I have to give food to those who are going for the game tonight. And the game would means crossing the border, trying to get into EU to seek asylum, putting up with abusers by the border police because they face violent pushback, getting beaten up by dog. Some of them even have to cross the frozen river. Mm, I, I, I heard of story about this young boy who fell through the icy river and he passed on. Yeah, he was gone. Um, yeah, so sometimes they failed their border crossing, they come back, they have bruises and all. So this is what they have to go through, you know, to find somewhere that where they can they are safe and live in dignity. Yeah. Wow. It's 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 only when you when you go through experiences like that then you realize, you know, what we're going through, it's nothing to complain about. And these kind of trips are so eye opening in that respect. Um I guess you came back from from this whole journey a, a different person, right? Um, just just in terms of the way you see the world, in terms of the way you see what success means, just in the terms you see you, you understand what what entails happiness, right? Did you come back completely? Yeah, different? and and I, mean, I I really don't want to like complain about small things anymore. It's like no internet for one day. People complain. I can watch my Netflix on Sunday. And I was like. Uh, I I feel some, uh, uh, you know, ever since I came back, I just feel this huge, huge disconnection with people around me. Because I think I I I see I've seen things differently now. I cannot like relate to their mundane concerns anymore. Yeah. So sometimes when they have conversation, I'm just like. <laughs> yeah, they don't get it. They don't understand. They don't have that light switched on. So how how are you dealing with like society's expectations? Because you're back home in Singapore, right? And society still expects you to go through that single track um, journey, get a job, have a career, have children, get married, you know, go and buy a house or buy an HDB, and then. I I don't let that. <laughs> how are you dealing uh, with that? It's like... No, I just do my own thing. <laughs> But you know, it can be quite an isolating experience because it's like, you're also cutting yourself out from the rest of the society, in a way. Yeah, because most of societies like that, right? 
and uh, there's very few outliers in that respect. Mm, so what I do is I connect with people who are like me, uh, who has like travel. Um, so when I was back in Singapore, I do host uh, other travelers who are passing by Singapore. So they stay in my house and we have conversations. You know, conversations that I really miss when I was traveling on the road. Yeah. Some of those conversations are like, are like what kind of stuff do you all talk about? Talk about people in different countries and how we view about, you know, many things. All the way from the idea of marriage being a social construct to um, how, you know, sometimes society can be seen as a cult in a way. <laughs> no, I just had this, like, comp- it was, recently I've been going on Clubhouse a lot because, you know, I, I'm not meeting a lot of travellers, but I was on Clubhouse and getting to speak with people from different parts of the world. I think that is my channel of uh, outlet and inlet for information of that is going on around the world. So yeah, um, anything under the sun uh, that we feel very passionate about. And uh, right now, I'm still continue to post my travel stories online, even though I've been back in Singapore for, for three years. But I have still have a lot of stories and videos to share. It's just that I really need the time uh, to put everything together uh, and put them online. Because I, I believe some of these stories can be very valuable to people and how they can choose to live their life. Because mm, like especially for, for, for women, you know, when I was traveling in some countries, I realized that mm, doing what I do right, is something that it's very difficult for them because again this societal expectation of how, what a woman should do and their gender roles is very very strongly ingraining them um yeah i i just like a few days ago i was just sharing about things that women have told me uh behind closed door maybe these are things that they will never tell their husband or family members uh because you know i am a woman a solo woman i get to enter their space they they get to tell me stuff so i was sharing online and that um, sharing actually took enough for this uh, young lady from Iraq. So she's a humanitarian um, activist from Iraq, Kurdistan. And she wanted to have an Instagram live conversation about this issue to share the hidden voices of women. Um, so yeah, I'm planning for that. So we're ho- hoping to have it this Sunday to have a conversation about this. Because if nobody speaks out about all these issues, nobody will know, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's only once you start to distance yourself away from conservative establishment society and then you, you analyze our world you know, through impartial eyes, you realize a lot of it is a construct. Uh, whether it's the economy, whether it's the concept of money, whether it's the concept of marriage and children, whether it's the concept of like even faith, it's all constructs and sometimes they're very convenient to the people who benefit from it, right? And um, I've been a student of that for a very long time and, and the more you analyze it, uh, the more you realize that there's, there's winners and then there's losers, right? From this whole construct and even people like Yuval Noah Harari talks about it because at the end of the day, it's, it's a story, right? Let's just talk, let's talk about money, for example, right? Um, the US dollar has got no intrinsic value. 
It is only the faith that you have in it and I have in it. And that's what gives it the value. Beyond that, what is it backed by? Nothing. It's not backed by anything. It hasn't been backed by anything since 1974 when it's taken off the gold standard. And here we are. We are we're killing ourselves. We're stressing ourselves out. We're giving ourselves heart attacks and strokes just to chase that bloody US dollar, right? Or, or money generally. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And people, they don't, they don't know that there's a world out there. They don't know that there's Iran and Afghanistan and, and Pakistan and India and, and Laos and Cambodia. This whole world out there with real, real life people having amazing lives. And I, th- that's why I talk to people like you because you give um, this view that most of society do not have. And I, I, that's why I, I want to encourage people to go and travel and see the world. And then in so doing, they come back with this 360 degree perspective of life which is as it should be not blinded by society's expectations you know mm. so so that that's that's why i talk to people like you because i feel that people like you can bring that perspective i mean people like me i've traveled you know but i've traveled in pockets of time like six weeks three weeks four weeks two weeks right 27 months is a lifetime you know for people they can live an entire life in 27 months and you've seen that i find that amazing yeah, I, I think, you know, I learned to really learn to let go of a lot of things uh, for myself after traveling. All this expectation of myself. And I try to steer my own road rather than to let society steer my road, my path. Yeah. So what's next for you? Because you have a whole lifetime ahead of you, right? I presume you're, you're, presume you're only in your early 30s and... You've got the rest of your life to go. <laughs> so, so how how is your journeys and where you are now? How has it informed you in terms of your outlook and what's next for you? Not just the next trip, but as a person and and maybe share your experiences with other people, right? Especially on on the on the woman side. Hmm. Mm, I think we are stronger than we think we are as a as a especially as a woman. I think for quite sometimes we're always told that we can't do this, you can't do this. And we actually let ourselves to really believe it. And we never really step out to try. Uh, it's only when, that, when we try that we really know. So if you never try, you never know. So um, like right now, I'm also like trying different things. Um, so recently I just, uh, okay. So ever since I come back uh, from Singapore, I was a freelancer. Um, so I was doing tuition, uh, giving private tuition, uh, teaching kids yoga, and sometimes I get engaged for speaking engagements, um, get invited to travel product launch. Um, so this wouldn't have happened even if I did not let go of my past identity as, uh, I was doing research because so I was working in a lab, uh, which is a very grounded career. And very so I left that to travel. Well. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. And very background as well, right? Um, just like one of those introvert type people. Mm, yeah. Actually, I, I find that I'm an amphibian. So sometimes I really want to be myself. So, there. so I'm fine with traveling alone. But I'm always not alone. So if I want to pick, speak to people, I sometimes do reach out to people and just strike conversations. Uh, and then... So, okay. I just gave up this full-time employment to take on a traineeship. Um... So I'm very also very privileged that Singapore has this program called the Youth uh, Tech Program. So it is trying to help social enterprises to digitalize. 
and they want to train young people uh, to equip them with the skills to help companies to digitalize. So I just uh, signed up for that. So it is a one-year traineeship. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to learn more um, because I want to be a digital nomad to be able to work remotely. So, because last time, you know, when I was traveling, while well, everything is like, I was like on a budget because I have to take note of the, you know, my expenses. I, I don't really have like a stable income coming in. So I was really much dependent on my own savings and also sometimes some donations from my website. So if they want to buy me kopi, they can buy me a meal for $5. So I, I get a bit of support from my followers. Um, but I want to get, uh, explore other sources of income, um, by being a digital nomad. Mm, so I want to start on, on this uh, traineeship journey to learn the skills that, uh, that, that, you know, that will probably help me in that, uh, help me go towards that process. Yeah. One of the YouTubers, I, I watch a lot of, um, YouTube, right. And one of the, one of the more popular YouTubers that I follow, um, is this girl called Nurali. Nurali is this Dutch girl that is, um, also a solo rider, oh. right. Itchy Boots, right. There's a channel, She's done really well. I think she's up to like maybe 800,000 subscribers already. I think she she did have savings from before. What I know about her profile, she did have savings from before. I think she was a metals engineer or something, right? Then she saved up oil and gas or something. But I think her YouTube channel does really well for her. And um, she she's very um, she's a very frequent poster on her channel. So I guess that's another way for her to like generate revenue. And she's also she's very similar to you. Um, she might be a little bit older than you but not much older, but um, she also does traveling solo. She did India, Royal Enfield. So she, she was a very uh, ardent Royal Enfield supporter from from way back when. And then, and then I think she's moved on to Honda or something, but slightly bigger bikes than than, than a Vespa. La. But I think she makes a lot of money on, on from her channel and from a digital revenue. It's interesting. I don't know whether you reached out to her before or not. Uh, no, but I did follow her. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's possible, but it's not easy because I've traveled, and yeah, and and to to you create need to set aside time to edit. Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's a big thing. You just gotta make sure that everything's proper, you know, so your equipment is charged up, and it's no joke, man. <laughs> yeah, and then when you are while camping, it's like you know when I'm while camping, I have to switch off all my devices, my handphone, everything. So yeah, yeah because I don't have electricity, right? So uh. I think if you want to do it digitalize, you know, all your income and everything, um, I think you have to take it as a job, not no longer as a holiday. You have to really set yeah. aside some of the time to sit down, yeah, in a hotel or hostel, you know, there's no interruption and just do your work. Mm. Yeah. So so I guess what's next for you? What what's the next trip and is it gonna take a different form? Are you gonna you know, is it gonna be solo on a Vespa still or and and you know what what can, you know obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic right so we don't know when we can travel, um, so so what's the thinking there? Um, so I'm hoping to leave next year in September. Um, hopefully the border opens by then. Um, my scooter is still in Czech Republic. Uh, I I'm going to get it re-registered. Um, and then to continue my trip. Okay, actually my plans are are pretty open. And the thing is, now I also have a boyfriend, and my boyfriend wants to come with me. So, it may or may not How's be on the Vespa anymore. How's that going to be? Because you're used to solo travel, right? There's a lot of merits to solo travel, but there's also a lot of like disadvantages. 
you know, people to look after your stuff or you go to the loo or something, you know. It's yes. as simple as that, right? All your barang Nobody there. Nobody help me take photos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right? I need right. to take Instagram-worthy photos. Yeah. <laughs> so I need an Insta boyfriend to help me do that. <laughs> so he's, he's in Singapore now or he's somewhere else? He's in Singapore. Yeah, but, but uh, I, I'm not sure about him because I'm ready to go. And for him, he's a bit different. He like wants to have everything ready, settled, or you have all these funds ready, then you go. But for me, it's like, okay, I'm not enough money. Okay, <laughs> I'll figure go. things out along the way. <laughs> Just work on the way, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I, 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 did tell, I tell him honestly, if you're not ready to go, I'm ready to go on my own. Really, I, I don't want to wait for anybody. <laughs> you join me when you're ready. That's the way it should be. I'm going to put all the link. I'm going to ask you to pass me the links to your, your travel blog and to your materials. And, and I'm going to ask you to send me pictures of whatever you can so that people can see where you've been and some of the stories that you want to tell. Um, but uh, I'm going to, you'll, be, you'll be able to find that in the descriptors below. But um, th- thank you for, for doing this. Um, thank you for being so honest, uh, candid, um, you know, um, insightful. I think you've been very inspirational to everybody um, that will come across you now and in the future. Please continue to do what you do. Um, you are one of the pioneers of, of this in this part of the world. You should continue. And I uh, think your story will be inspirational for, for many, many people for many more, many more years to come. So thank you for doing this, Jimena. It's a great honor and a pleasure. 